The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bible to John chapter 16. We're only going to be able to say that this time and for our next study, and then we'll be into the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. John chapter 16. Looking at this upper room, which is really a farewell discourse of Jesus, who's moved from the upper room through the streets of Jerusalem down the the slope of the Temple Mount on the eastern side, down into the valley of where the olive trees would be thicker and a grove would be there and the Kidron Valley would, would give way from vineyards into olive groves. And this is a sweet and special section of Scripture. Because in the words that we'll be considering today, Jesus actually begins his conclusion to his conclusion of all he wants to say to the disciples to get them ready for life with him, without him. This is his last lap. He's about to enter into the garden, pray with them, and then be forsaken by God and such will begin the payment for our sins that will culminate on the cross where he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the last moments before that forsaking would begin. This is holy ground. And yet, he has no regard for himself in these moments, only for the disciples. It's not until he gets into the middle of his prayer, the beginning of his prayer, that he even gives attention to what this whole dramatic event means to him. For now, he's still concerned about these knuckle-headed disciples who still, at this last lap, in this last moment, don't understand. Let's pick it up, beginning in verse 16. John chapter 16, verse 16. A little while, Jesus says, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is it that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because of her hour and The hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, If you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. 
It's remarkable to me as I look week in and week out, month in and month out, as we come to the Lord's table, how the Lord uniquely and perfectly fits the things that we're studying to the giving of worship in the communion service. It's remarkable. We couldn't have made a, a better on-ramp for worship than what Jesus has prepared for us in this passage. Now, I have to confess, my first thought at this passage is it would take us about four or six weeks to get through here. And I was talking to Bob and Aaron about it this week, but it's such a tight unit. It's just one unit of thought. We have to press all the way through these verses because they mean so much together, so much more together than they would if we divided them up. Everyone's heard the adage, the only thing certain in life is death and taxes, you're right? Sounds pretty good, but it's not entirely accurate. Those aren't exactly certainties. There are those who've uh, figured out how not to pay taxes. I would encourage you not to speak to those folks. Some even live in the remotest parts of Alaska to uh, avoid the government imposing and collecting taxes. I met a gentleman uh, a few years ago in Alaska who was one of those guys. He lived way upriver, and I was talking to him, and, and he was basically there so that the government would not know where he was, and they couldn't have any of his money. And I just wondered, what are you going to spend your money on out here? What about death, though? Maybe you find someone who's successful at not paying taxes. What about death? Is it possible to not die? Well, actually it is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 says, There will be those alive at the return of Christ who will not experience death, but will be taken up with him. So to say that the only two certainties are death and taxes isn't exactly accurate. But are there certainties in life that are universal, common to everyone? And the answer to that is yes. There is one thing that may stand out above all of them that's common to all of us. It's an undeniable reality, a certain reality for everyone. It's true of everyone. Uh, it's true of you. It's true of your kids. It's true of your babies. It's true of the young and the old. It's true for everyone, and that truth is at the heart of the passage before us today. The one common thing to all men is a natural inclination to desire and attain happiness. No one has ever woken up in the morning and said, I want to be unhappy because even those in the monasteries who've done that was to give them some semblance of happiness and some semblance of joy in their unhappiness. No one gets up and pursues unhappiness. Everyone would rather experience happiness instead of sadness Blessing instead of curses, pleasure rather than pain, joy instead of sorrow. It's universal. I think it's fair to say that the better part of our lives is spent positioning ourselves to experience joys and happiness and instead of sorrows and sadness. Almost everything we do lends itself to producing maximum joy and happiness and minimizing joy and sorrow and sadness. Now the challenge is this. Most of our joys and happinesses are temporary. The great meal always ends or you get full. The roller coaster always comes to a stop. Our favorite song always ends and has to be restarted. We can go on and on and on. There are very few joys that we can experience in this life that have but a momentary giving of happiness. But the time we all desire joy and happiness most is when we sense this absence the most intense. We're in the middle of a sorrow, a disheartening trial. A friend or family member is in trouble. 
We have financial strains. We have health issues. We have problems at work. We have relational concerns. In the midst of all of those times, when the, when the sorrow is intense and real, no other time is the desire for happiness more intense. That's exactly what's happening here in John 16. Here we meet our friends, the 11 disciples, Judas having left to go betray Jesus, who was doing the last bit of his betraying and receiving his money for turning Jesus over. At this very moment, Jesus about to go into the garden. These 11 are confused, they're frightened, they're disillusioned, and they're distressed. They think about their position. They found the Messiah. Up in Caesarea Philippi, Peter said, you are the anointed one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you got this from God and you're right. Can you imagine a happier state of mind than to be a Jew alive at the time of Christ who found the Messiah? They were a part of Jesus' favorite people. They were the privileged few. They had seen miracles. Are you ready for this? They had been sent out to perform miracles, Matthew 10 says. Jesus had led them, though, to Jerusalem for a very different outcome that they were, than they were anticipated, and certainly a very different outcome that they desired. Only days earlier they had watched as Jesus comes into the, into the, um, the city and through the wall, through the gate, and what do the people do? They laid palm branches down. They were saying, this is the king, hail the king. Their excitement had created a a rivalry amongst themselves. They began to argue over who would sit closest to the throne when Jesus establishes his his kingdom. And we've seen this over and over and over as Jesus has dealt with this in these previous chapters. They were thinking uh, not about death, not about crucifixion, not about resurrection. They were thinking, where am I going to sit? They were actually arguing about where they would sit And the prominent places they would have when Jesus takes his outer garment off and washes their feet. But everything changed when they sat down for that supper. Jesus took that role of slave, washes their feet, and then he speaks of one of them betraying him. He looks into those 12 men's eyes and says, one of you is about to betray me and turn me over. He again repeated the forewarning that he was about to be tried and executed and would rise from the dead. Now they sensed that something was wrong. Look back at chapter 13, verse 21. This is a very important little tidbit that that John records for us. In John chapter 13, verse 21, when Jesus has said this, he became troubled in spirit. John noticed that, and John recorded that for us. Once Jesus unpacks the final plan that one of them was going to betray him, his mood changed. There was no more euphoria in the streets. They knew because of the, in the previous days, the crowd had turned from putting palm branches down to wanting to execute him, calling for his head. But they felt pretty confident in Jesus. Why? They had seen him feed thousands. They had seen him perform miracles. They had seen him even raise Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty good guy to have on your team, isn't it? What could they be afraid of? Only one thing, and that was his absence. 
And that's what he tells them over and over in these chapters is about to happen. Their greatest fear was upon them, and they start getting that, but they don't get the full implications of it. Jesus had perfect apprehension of the coming hours. He understood the extent of his physical suffering. And even more so, he understood as the sin bearer, he would be forsaken by the Father. Yet, on the front porch of this, his darkest hour, he directs all of his attention to the creation and preservation of the disciples' joy and happiness. I mean, this is just uncanny. This is a man about to be crucified, after which he's beaten and rejected, after which he's, he's uh, ridiculed, after which his own closest men flee from him. And in the midst of that anticipation, that full knowledge, that absolute apprehension and full detail of everything that was going to happen, he's still concerned about them. All of the centers around what happens in verses 22 and in verses 24. Look at that for a second. Therefore you have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will, here's the key word, rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Look at verse 24. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy will be made full. That's the center message of these verses. Jesus understands the grief. He wants to tell them about the grief. He's predicting their grief. He wants them to be prepared for grief, but he also wants them to know that there is joy after this grief. This is about joy. I want you to leave church this morning with this overwhelming message ringing in your ears. I pray that this promise rings in your heart and ears the rest of the week that Jesus has left provision for you to have full joy regardless of any circumstance, regardless of any threat from family members or neighbors or jobs or you name it. He's made provision for joy because I can promise you the grief that you're experiencing bears no resemblance to the grief the disciples are about to encounter. What is Christian joy? Let's ask that before we jump into this. What is Christian joy? I want to give you a little longer definition. I'll say it a couple times because Christian joy has, has been so misdefined in our contemporary evangelicalism, we have to take the time to actually define it out. Christian joy is the emotion. Yes, it is an emotion. The Greek nomenclature suggests that from the word joy. The descriptions of joy just, just depict that. Christian joy is the emotion springing from the deep down confidence that God is in complete control. Let's think about that. Christian joy is the emotion springing from the deep down confidence that God is in complete control. And he will bring about my good and his glory both now and in eternity. And he will bring about my good and his glory both now and in eternity. Now, few have needed a perspective like this more than these men at this time on this night in this circumstance. He was hours away from arrest. A few hours more and he would be beaten. And a few hours more the next morning he would be hung on a cross. And the instruction from the Savior is overwhelming. He says, in the middle of what you're What you most want not to happen, in the midst of that, provision is made for you to have the greatest possible joy. 
He wants to give them a perspective that will fuel a joy that's impervious to circumstances. It's a great question to ask at the beginning. Do we have a joy that's impervious to all circumstances? Does our happiness come and go and leave and wane with what's going on around us? What is our joy and happiness based upon? Well, let's dive into the text. In this text, we can find together two insights that lead to impervious joy. Two insights that lead to impervious joy. A joy that will not leave. A joy that cannot be stolen. The first insight is in verses 16 and 19. Spiritual ignorance fosters hopeless grief. That's important. Spiritual ignorance fosters hopeless grief. Verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. Now, Jesus uses this phrase, a little while, several times in this passage, twice in this verse. It'll come back in the minds of the disciples in just a few verses. This is a a reference to the few hours that are ahead of them and the few days that are before them. This first reference, in a little while you will see me no longer, is a reference to the the fact that Jesus was going to be taken away and crucified. He would be in the grave for three days. The second is a reference to his resurrection. Then you'll see me again. I will be alive. Now, I have to uh, at least uh, pull the car over for a minute and tell you that there are many different understandings of what this passage means. There are some, some really good men who think that he's talking not about the death and resurrection, but, a fact, but the fact that he's going to be away for, for church history and come back in the, um, in the final second coming. I don't see that that's in mind here. That's, Jesus was, was talking to these men about their, their impending grief. He's talking about where they are right then. He's not dealing with lots of eschatological realities right here. He's dealing with men who are about to have their greatest trial in life. In a little while, you'll no longer see me. I'm going to be dead and in the grave. And again, in a little while, you'll see me again. I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, verse 17, is, is there's some humor in here. Some of his disciples then said, keyword, to one another. They didn't ask him. We'll find out in a minute that they didn't ask him, and Jesus knew they weren't asking him on purpose. What is this thing he's telling us? A little while you'll now see me, and again, a little while you'll see me. Then they add a third phrase, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he's, he's talking about? A little while. We don't know what he's talking about. In these last moments before his final prayer, Jesus revisits his coming death and resurrection, and once again, the disciples don't get it. The patience of Christ is, is overwhelming and amazing in, 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 fact that, in the fact that he's, he's repeatedly told them this. This shouldn't be a surprise. I want to give you a quick tour. We've taken it before. It's very important to take it here. Go back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Because Mark chronicles this, this prediction of these predictions of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, so clearly in almost a staccato fashion. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. They were only there in Jerusalem, by the way, so they knew it had to happen in Jerusalem. And the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Is that clear? Is there any more clarity that could come from those words? Well, go over to chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 31. 
where he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But this all comes into specific focus in that argument that they were having in Mark chapter 10. We looked at this a couple times in the study of the Upper Room Discourse, and we have to come back to it in this moment as well. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, all roads go up to Jerusalem. They were coming from the valley. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. This is still remarkable to me. Jesus is going ahead of them knowing that he's going to die. He's leading the way. And they were amazed. Why were they amazed? Everyone's out to get him, and he is marching headlong to Jerusalem. And those who followed were fearful for good reason. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. I love the little word again and again. Mark just says, and again, this, this is not the first time. Saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. It's exactly what happened in the back and forth of the trials, ultimately ending up before Pilate. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. Is that clear? What questions would you have if Jesus had said that to you? Time out. What do you mean? How are you going to die? What's going to happen to us? There's a thousand questions that should flood your mind. Look what happens next. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, um, Teacher, we, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit on your right and one on your left in your glory. Really? I'm going to die. Hey, where can I sit? But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, speaking of his death. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall not, footnote is, ask where to sit in the great places to be observed and honored, shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served rather, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now again, after all of that, after the Last Supper, after the prediction of Judas, after all of that, he's about to have his final words with them, and they're still saying, what is he talking about? That he's going to go away and come again? What what is he talking about? They focus in on that little phrase, in a little while, and now we're back in John 16. And notice how they connect this with what Jesus said in chapter 16, verse 10. That's where he says, I'm going to the Father. They put the whole thing together, rightly so. 
Jesus was doing at least two things here with his men. First, he was preparing them as much as possible for the coming trial of his arrest, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. He wanted them to be prepared, but also he knew they would eventually connect the dots that their master was in full knowledge of and in control of his own execution. Remember, John himself was one of the ones confused, but this gospel connects the dots after the facts. Jesus is saying all this, knowing they don't get it now, but knowing they will later. And then they'll go back and say, this wasn't an accident. This is huge. He told us over and over and over, not only that this would happen, but he told us the great specifics of what would happen. All the way down to that he would die on a cross, all the way down to that he would be in the grave, all the way down to three days and he would rise again from the dead. This was very, very specified on purpose. Verse 19. Jesus knew they wished to question him. Why didn't they question him? Maybe fear, maybe embarrassment. He'd already rebuked them for asking questions they should have known the answer for earlier in the evening. Maybe honor, maybe respect, maybe respect. Well, we don't know. But he says, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? He knew they were talking about this. He knew they wanted to know what was going on. What's clear here is that their spiritual ignorance fostered their sorrow and despair. And just as it did that in the specific situation there, it does that in a general situation with us. Spiritual ignorance leads to sorrow and despair. They had been given all of the pertinent information they needed to be protected from sorrow and despair, and they chose to think of other things. Such is the case with you and me as well. Spiritual ignorance fosters sorrow and despair. It still does. Which leads to the second insight leading to impervious joy. And this is where Jesus is leading them. Number two, gospel revelation informs sustained joy. Gospel revelation informs sustained joy. Truly, truly. Greek is amen and amen. So be it, so be it. I'm telling you the truth. Underline this, highlight this is what that means. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Don't miss the fact that Jesus responds to their need. He doesn't respond to their questions. He still does the same. We have lots of questions that simply won't be answered in this life with regard to our sorrow and our despair. But we do have needs that Jesus addresses here in the pages of Scripture that transcend what we think we want to know and give us what we really need. In a few hours, the problem would would not be curiosity, but intense sorrow and grief. Imagine this. They were after Jesus. They felt pretty protected because Jesus could even raise the dead. He was about to be taken away. He was about to leave intentionally. Then two responses, that of the world and that of the disciples to his death. Now imagine, he says, uh, uh, you're going to weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Imagine for a second the response of Caiaphas. Think of the dinner on that Friday night when Caiaphas and the chief scribes and the, the Pharisees got together. They were eating, talking about the fact that they had wine. That guy from Nazareth, that guy from Galilee, that miracle worker, 
done. He couldn't even save himself. They had won. They were rejoicing. That was exactly what happened for those three days. Just the opposite was the case with these 11 men, though. How could this happen? I mean, imagine their sorrow after Jesus' death. To our, at least to our record, we, we think probably Peter could have been on the outskirts, maybe watching the crucifixion. We know that John was there, but the rest had run for their lives. What were they thinking after Jesus' death? What were they thinking while Jesus was in the grave? They'd seen Jesus wield unbelievable powers and now he was executed without a fight. I mean, Peter, when he was watching this from afar, being tied to a post and scourged, Peter had to be wondering, Lord, you can, with a word, waylay these men. Remember, just when he was arrested, he said, I am, and the whole Roman cohort fell down. No argument. He had been the greatest teacher, the greatest arguer these men had ever experienced. And now, before his accusers, as we sang earlier, he was what? Silent. And for the next three days, they would think about the last three years. Was it worth it? Was he really the Messiah? Had they missed it? Had they wasted their lives with him? They were also very aware that they were marked men. Is it any wonder Peter denied that he even knew Jesus? Look carefully, though, at the language Jesus uses here. He does not say that their grief would be replaced by joy. On purpose, the Greek language is, language is very specific here. He says, your grief will be turned into joy. Now, that was so alarming, he knew it would be alarming, that he gives an illustration. An illustration that will be familiar to them all. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. This is a, this is a reality that, that every mother knows. This is a reality that every father has seen. This is a reality that the world understands and experiences. The point is that the same event... The same circumstance that caused a pregnant woman's pain and discomfort during childbirth is the same circumstance and the same event that would give joy in the end. So it will be with the disciples. The very thing that will bring them grief, the cross. The very thing that will bring them pain and suffering and fear and anguish. That very thing will be what generates their greatest joy and will be a reality that's impossible to take away. He doesn't replace their joy. He turns their grief about the cross into joy because that's what will pay for their sins. Verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. You can, just, you can just feel the fact that Jesus wants to say, as he said over and over, 
I'm going to be dead, but I'll be alive again. He's been so clear about that. What else can he say? And so he just tells them again and realizes that come Sunday, things will be different. He makes the obvious link here between impervious joy and the bedrock reality of the resurrection. Isn't it interesting how the threat is raised and phrased by the Lord against joy? He says, no one will be able to take your joy away from you. He doesn't say that you can lose your joy. He personalizes it and says the threat comes from a person or people. No one will be able to take this away from you. Who in the world would want to steal a believer's joy? Well, simple. simple. The, The enemies of the faith want to steal our joy. You want to irritate an unbeliever beyond anything? Just be happy no matter of your circumstances. Just rise above it. We've all experienced what it's like for an unbeliever to attack our joy, our confidence, our beliefs. But Jesus provides the ultimate anchor for joy here for his men and for us by tying joy to the reality of the resurrection. Listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus is alive today, what have we said over and over? That changes everything. And if he offers us security and hope from our own death with the promise of our own resurrection, that death isn't the final victor, then no one can steal our joy because the greatest threat they have against us, Luke chapter 12 says, is that they would kill us. And what's that do? It sends us to heaven. There is no threat. There is no threat to a believer. Let me say it as simple as I can based on what Jesus is telling his disciples in their darkest hour, which is way worse than yours and mine. There should be no such thing as an unhappy Christian. There should be no such thing as an unhappy Christian. Why? Let's say it like we do on Easter. Because he has risen. He has risen indeed. If he has conquered death, and if he says you will see me again, if life is certain to end in our ushering into heaven... No one can steal that joy. Verse 23, in that day, you will not question me about anything. I love that. In that day, you won't question me. Once I've risen from the dead, your questions will be answered. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, first time he's ever told them that, he will give it to you. Now, the key in verses 23 and 24 is the phrase, in my name. they've, They've not had or gotten this instruction before. They didn't understand what this meant. What does it mean to in his name? And sometimes we misunderstand what it means when we just tack in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers without really thinking about what it means. It's not the postage stamp that gets your prayer to heaven. It means because of who Jesus is. In his name. The key here is the mediatorial role of Christ. That he stands between God and us and between us and God. That to go to the Father, we come through Christ. To ask anything, context here is related to ministry, in his name, the Father will grant. This is really important with these men who are Jewish, as we read in Acts this morning in our scripture reading, going out to minister to Jews. You must do ministry, request grace and mercy to do ministry from the throne of God in the name of the true and genuine Messiah, the mediator, the anointed one, the Christ, Jesus. 
Verse 24, until you have asked for, until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy will be made full. You haven't had to come in my name because I've been here with you, between you and the Father, in a, in a very natural sense. Once I'm away from you, you need to come to God the Father through the Son. Because of the promise of divine answers being accessed in the Father only through the mediator of the Son, that's why we ask things in Jesus' name. What happens if we do that? Look at that last phrase. So that your joy will be made full. Let me give you a quick lesson in Greek, okay? The, the Greek word here for the English verb, made full, is really not a verb at all. It's a participle. It's a, it's a very special participle. It's a perfect passive participle. And that simply means that the grammar emphasizes continuing, ongoing, never-ceasing impact of full joy. In other words, your joy will be made full over and over and over in an inexhaustible way. You cannot exhaust this joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that kind of joy. And you're not going to find it at the amusement park. I won't even find it at Cabela's. You will only find this in the promise of the gospel, which is accented by the resurrection. In other words, the gospel should be our central reality that generates our joy, sustains our joy, ensures our joy, conquers all and every grief. If we believe the gospel and the gospel climaxes in the resurrection and we have the resurrection in our future, it puts things into perspective, doesn't it? I love John 20, 20. After the resurrection, when he had said this, he showed them, this is when Jesus comes to the disciples, he showed them both his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Their joy was made full when they saw the living, resurrected Savior. Listen, not knowing how things will sort out in the future, having the deepest threat of loneliness, these disciples understood that. Jesus said, joy is possible if you anchor your thoughts and your hope in the gospel. They didn't understand this that night, but he said this so they would remember this and put all the, all the, the pieces together and connect the dots and would understand it later. John records this. Mark records this. Matthew and Luke record this. So where does that put us? You will experience countless opportunities to be sorrowful, countless griefs that will seem overwhelming. Some people in this room may not be here a year from now. Diseases come. Some people will experience in the coming year the death and loss of loved ones, loss of job. We can go on and on and on. Where is your joy anchored? Jesus wanted his disciples prepared so that when sorrow came, joy wouldn't be taken away by anyone or by anything. And it was because they believed the reality of the death and burial and resurrection of their friend, the Lord Jesus. And oh, how things would change after the resurrection. Oh, how things would change after the ascension.
Remember when Jesus comes in the room, he just kind of, in a resurrected body, goes through the wall, door was closed, and there he is. They have this interaction with him. It's up in Galilee, and they have fish with him. Then he ascends to heaven. And we see this wonderful friendship, this uh, cordial relationship that he has with his disciples. His best friend, arguably, in the whole world is the one whom he loved, John, who wrote this. Yet John, in Revelation chapter 1, gets a vision of the glorified Lord Jesus. There's no high fives. There's no knuckles. There's no, hey, how's it going? He falls down as a dead man. Why? Because Jesus is now glorified. What does Jesus say? Get up. I have some letters for you to write. His gracious invitation, his gracious provision in the gospel allow us to approach, just as we sing all the time from Hebrews chapter 10, bold I approach the eternal throne because of him. That leads us to what's before us, the table, communion. What a perfect invitation to consider the gospel in our text and to consider the gospel at the table. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.